episode 86, Civil Rights Banner. I'm Morgan Shortle, and you're listening to the July 29th, 2009 podcast from the Kansas Historical Society. In this podcast, museum staff reveal the story behind the story about artifacts featured on the Cool Things section of our website, kshs.org. During the civil rights movement, advocates of equal rights for everyone made effective use of a nonviolent protest action known as a sit-in. Most people in the United States have heard of the famous 1960 sit-in at a lunch counter in Greensboro, North Carolina. But did you know there was a successful sit-in at a lunch counter in downtown Wichita, Kansas over a year earlier? Why is this significant event in our state's history so little known? Join collection specialist Donna Ray Pearson and me to examine a banner marking the 50th anniversary of the Wichita sit-in. Then we'll head to 100 Acre Wood to try to connect William Allen White to everyone's favorite honey-loving teddy bear, Winnie the Pooh. What is White's connection to this chubby little guy? Is it more than just body type and a love of sweets? Find out when we play Six Degrees of William Allen White. But first, Civil Rights Banner. Good morning, Donna Ray. Good morning, Morgan. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, today, we're looking at a banner that was recently donated to the museum that was used in a, in a march in Wichita, Kansas, to commemorate the 50th anniversary of a significant but little-known milestone in civil rights history, the Dockham Drugstore sit-in. First, why a sit-in and what kind of conditions existed in Wichita at the time? Well, I'm going to take the second half of the question first. Okay. okay. <laughs> Wichita... Um, back in the 40s, and as is still today, is considered one of the most segregated cities in Kansas. So you had, you have um, conditions set up where blacks weren't necessarily free to go wherever they wanted to, even despite the law, the 1874 law, that said that civil rights were available to everybody who lived within the state of Kansas. Those kind of conditions, because of traditions, you know, um, didn't exist in Wichita at that point in time. So even though there was a legal structure in place, um, the community wasn't allowing people to go. And that's why they had to have a sit-in, because sit-ins tend to be more visible forms of protest where you actually go to a location and pro protest what's going on. So they literally sat at a counter and waited to be served, and of course they weren't going to be. So who planned the sit-in and what were they trying to achieve? Well, it was the 1958 youth of the NAACP branch. Um, there was about 20 or so members, ranging in ages from about 14 to 20-ish that um, planned the sit-in over a course of time, for about two years, and they practiced what was co considered nonviolent techniques, meaning they were taught that no matter what happened to them, they would not respond in a violent manner. And can you kind of explain um, how they, what about the sit-in at the drugstore? Mm, uh -huh. Well, how they go about doing it? Yeah. Well, they quartered coordinated themselves pretty good for young people, like, in my opinion. Um, <laughs> they um, de decided on the days that they were going, there was like two or three days where Dockham, which was a popular drugstore, was pretty busy. Um, so they 
they created shifts of about four hours in length, and they had enough people to fill every stool at the Dockham lunch counter, and thereby kind of shutting down business during the times that they were there. And I think they were there from around the lunchtime to the end of close. So. And how long did this um, sit in last, and um, what finally ended it? Mm-hmm. Well, amazingly, it didn't last very long. It only took about three weeks before um, the the manager or the owner came in and announced to a manager working to serve him that they were he was just losing too much money with this crowd of you know black teenagers sitting at the counter every day, um, a couple times a week. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so the national office of the NAACP did not authorize the sit-in. Um, why was that? Uh, at that time, at that point in time, the NAACP did not believe in direct action. And you're also talking about you know children here, basically, um, that that they believed in a platform where they wanted to legally dismantle racism and discrimination in the country, and. Um, so they they preferred doing court actions through the courts system, trying to change laws and structures that way. But of course, like I said, in Kansas, the legal structure was already there, so there had to be a different way to do it. So this action was planned and carried out by the young people. Why them and not the adults? Well, um, at that point, you know, the adults would have had to be concerned about losing their jobs or their income and, you know, their place within society. You know, honestly, the younger people were less worried about supporting a family or going to jail or anything of that nature. So it made more sense um, for the young people to do it. it and, and they did want to change things, you know. Um, it's, it's not that the adults were sending them to the wolves or something. <laughs> the young... The the young people were committed active activists themselves, so they were trying to make some changes. Great. Um, so this banner is from a march commemorating the 50th anniversary of the Dockham sit-in. I understand that, understand that you were there that day. Can you tell me a little about the event? Um, actually, yeah, I was there, I, I, and I almost didn't go. I, That particular, the night before, it was raining horribly, and it was predicted to keep raining the next day, and that's about a two-hour drive for me, so I hesitated about going. But but I, like about, with about 400 other people, still decided to show up just in case something (laughs) happened, and it did. Um, It was a very celebratory mood. There were, again, all of us were crammed into this small historic church, and we got to listen to speeches made by the national, people from the national NAACP office. Um, And there were local officials there. For instance, the mayor of the city gave the participants that were there um, a key to the city. So it was about celebrating what had happened and also acknowledging the mistake that was made nearly 50 years ago when this event wasn't celebrated at that point in time. Uh, You mentioned some of the original sit-in members were there. How many of them made it back? There were many of them. I can't give you an exact <laughs> count. But I mean, for instance, Ronald Walters, who was the president of the youth branch at that time period, he made it back and he gave some speeches. Um, Dr. Walters has went on to become a professor at um, the University of Maryland, I believe it is. And uh, he, actually, he also did some work on um, 
Jesse Jackson's presidential campaign. Another one of the participants that came back was a gentleman named Galen Vesey. He does, he's again a doctor, Galen Vesey. Um, Joyce Glass-Smith was there, Carol Parks, and those are the ones I can just remember off the top of my head. But most of them went on to do great things. Oh, great. Um, the Smithsonian has on display in Washington, D.C., the lunch counter from the more well-known Greensboro, North Carolina sit-in of 1960. Are there any artifacts or historical, historical markers to mark the sit-in event? Well, yes and no. <laughs> well, I mean, think about it. At the time, after the sit-in was over, it was pretty much just done. The the students kind of celebrated for a moment there at the counter and got up and went on about their business. Um, you know, they went back to school or what, if they had a job or something like that. They just finished up that way. There was never a community-wide celebration. You know, if, if I'd been there... I talk to them now and say, you know, you sure you don't have a shirt or a <laughs> pair of shoes or something from what? And they're all like, no, that was 50 <laughs> years ago. <laughs> They've moved on, apparently. Um, but there is something else. There's something in Wichita called a pocket park. And it's the place where the old Woolworth store used to be. And it's just up the street from where the Dockham Drug Store used to be. Now, the building is still there, but obviously, again, the business continued on. The building has changed hands, so we don't have the lunch counter, you know, from that time period. And uh, so all we have is this pocket park, and it happens to have a bronze sculpture of a lunch counter. It looks like it's, you know, a, a scene from the 50s, and um, people are being served, so that brought that little pocket park was picked as a place to commemorate Chester I. Lewis, who was the president of the branch at that time who authorized the sit-in because of its proximity to the lunch counter. Um, so even though it's not directly related, it's become a symbol within the African-American community of the Dockham sit-in. Kansas rightly should be proud of this historical civil rights event, but it seems that not too many people know about it. Why is the Dockham Drugstore sit-in so overlooked? Um, because we didn't talk about it. <laughs> I mean, really, the, the children kind of got up and left that day. Things went back to normal very quickly. There is rumors or, you know, saying that the whole topic while it was happening was kept pretty hush. Um, they didn't receive a lot of media attention because there was no violence involved in it. Mm -hmm. um, they were just hurting Dockham's drugstore pocketbook at that point in time period. Um, but th I think that's that contributed to the reason why there wasn't a lot of media. You know, there what there isn't a lot of write-ups about this. So event. how did it resurface? Well, there were two different things that happened. First, a a professor at, or she was then a graduate student, I believe, at the University of Kansas decided to write a paper about a little known sit-in that she had heard about that happened in Wichita. And then secondly, um, Kevin Miles, the, pres the current president of the NAACP, had also heard what he calls an urban legend that um, this sit-in had occurred and that the participants were actually still alive. So I think if 
if the participants weren't alive, we would have little to no information about this. But he contacted some of the participants. They started talking. It was verified. Then he contacted the national office and started a campaign, basically, to get them to acknowledge that this sit-in predated any other sit-ins that occurred. Great. Thanks for answering my questions. All right. Thank you, Morgan. So help me if you can. I've got to get back to the house at the corner by one. You'd be surprised there's so much to be done. Count all the And now it's time for another round of Six Degrees of William Allen White. Joining me today is Assistant Registrar Nikayla Zimmerman. Hello, Nikayla. Hello, Morgan. And Museum Director Bob Kuttkeisen. Hi, Bob. <laughs> Today we connect William Allen White to Winnie the Pooh, that lovable little teddy bear who has become quite the global property through books, radio, television, movies, and merchandising. Bob, would you give us some background on Pooh Bear? You bet. Or as Pooh would maybe say, old bother. But, no, that sounded more like Eeyore. Oh, well. <laughs> Impressions were never my strong suit. Well, Winnie the Pooh is created by English author A.A. A. Milne in the 1920s. He's also known as Pooh Bear, or simply Pooh. And he first appeared in a Christmas story that was written by Milne for a London newspaper in 1925. Uh, Milne's first collection of Pooh stories appeared in 1926, and Winnie the Pooh quickly became a favorite of readers all over the world. Milne named the character Winnie the Pooh after a teddy bear that was owned by his son, Christopher Robin Milne, who, as any reader of Winnie the Pooh is going to recognize, was the origin for the little boy in the Pooh stories, Christopher Robin. So while the books and stories have continued to be really popular, it's a safe bet that most people are probably more familiar with Winnie the Pooh from the many Disney cartoons and movies featuring Pooh Bear and his friends in the Hundred Acre Wood. And those first started appearing, uh, the Disney versions of them, in about 1966. Great. Thanks, Bob. And Kayla, I believe you have a solution. I do, and it's very short and sweet. Um, Winnie the Pooh, as Bob mentioned, was the creation of A.A. Milne. And his stories for children were very popular, which maybe didn't make Milne so happy. He would like to have been known for some of his more serious writing or adult writing. Um, as a young man, Milne was a student of H.G. Wells at the Henry House School. Uh, that was a small independent school that was run by Milne's father. And Wells taught there between 1889 and 1890. And as we know from William Allen White's address book, he was acquaintances with H.G. Wells. So... Yeah, that is pretty simple. I was Very short I was sweet. waiting for some roundabout, you know, <laughs> taking forever to get there. But, uh, yeah, the what is it? Wells and Theodore Roosevelt tend to show up a lot. They do. In the round table, right? In the round table, yes. Yeah, yeah. yeah we really got to get some, some connections <laughs> that don't need all those. Well, our listeners can call in with maybe something a little more out in left field. <laughs> to get to do. I was just glad yeah. I didn't have to connect him using, like, their rotund shape or a love of honey or yeah. something like that. <laughs> Thank you, Nikayla. Bob, would you like to issue the challenge for the next episode? Sure. Uh, next time, we want you to connect William Allen White to General George Armstrong Custer. Now, the reason we picked Custer is we recently redesigned the section of our museum's exhibit gallery that features Custer's boots. And yes, we actually have a pair of Custer's boots that were donated to the Historical Society back in, I think, 1920 uh, by his, li by his uh, widow, Libby Custer. So that was kind of had Custer on the brain here the last little bit, and we thought this might be a good time to bring Custer into the world of William Allen White. 
Great. So if you think you can connect William Allen White to one of the most famous and infamous generals in American military history, just send your solution to podcasts at kshs.org. That is podcasts with an S. That concludes episode 86, Civil Rights Banner. To see photos of the banner in the march, go to our website, kshs.org, and click on Podcasts. Are you a social networker jonesing for the latest information? Surf on over to Facebook and look us up. You'll get up-to-date news and fun stuff from the source of Kansas history. Just search Facebook for Kansas Historical Society and become our friend. Come back in two weeks when Assistant Museum Director Rebecca Martin takes a look at an elaborately carved walking stick that was made in the last century by a Methodist missionary of Native American heritage. What can this beautiful cane tell us about relations between Native Americans and whites in early Kansas? Join us in two weeks to find out. This podcast has been a production of the Kansas Historical Society. Real people, real stories.